0: Uh, Pastor Aaron's going to come up and share with us about the Bridge Ministry. Most of you probably know uh, there's a ministry here in Napa. It originally started with the church here, but it has become independent. It's it's own 501c3, but it's a year-long residential recovery program for men in addiction, and um, it's been going for about almost four years now, three four years, and uh, it's 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 just a discipleship-driven ministry. We believe uh, in men coming in, and coming to faith in Christ, receiving a new heart, being discipled into the faith. But it's very intense, it's very rigorous, and uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And so Pastor Aaron is going to share with us a little bit about that and also um, just how, you, how we can help to support the ministry.
1: So. Thank you, Pastor Rob. So I think most people here know, are familiar with, with the Bridge Brothers, right, as we lovingly call them. Um, if you don't know what the bridge is, just real quickly, it's a 12-month residential discipleship program. It's a sufficiency model program, meaning Christ is enough. That's the way we treat addiction here with the Word of God. Um, it is a uh, program that includes a vocational training, job training component. So the guys are working 40-plus hours a week. Um, we go to the gym. I mean, it's like Pastor Rob is saying, it's very involved. There's a lot of things that go into it. Um, but obviously, our primary purpose and our primary mission is uh, if people don't know christ introducing them to who he is getting them the gospel as quick as we can over and over and over until they understand it until the lord turns the lights on and that has happened so many times and the life transformations that take place um, when these guys come to know christ is is pretty radical I mean, there's nothing more exciting, at least for me, than to be around these guys um, who are desiring to have their lives changed and to do it in a way that's pleasing to God. It's you know, I mean, anybody that's been around them knows, like it's it's pretty it's pretty life-giving um, to come alongside these brothers. And most of the time, I think we take away more than they actually get from us um, because it really does take a commitment from these guys to to put their lives on pause uh, for a year. And it really is learning how to submit and surrender completely and fully to Christ and to do the hard thing now because there's going to be many hard things in life. And it is a hard thing to do. And uh, so, you know, the the bridge is a donation-supported nonprofit. So we're able, by the grace of God, to provide these services for free um, because we operate off of, you know, donations. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do you, you know, where did all the money come from? I don't really know because, you know... (laughs) It doesn't really add up. What we have as far as our donor base right now doesn't really add up to how we can still function is by the grace of God. We're in, Because we're a newer organization and we're still trying to kind of let people know we're out there, um, you know, we're, that's just what we're doing. We're still trying to let people know we're there. And if you want to partner with us, because it is a partnership, it's not about me, it's not about my wife, it's not about our, our mentors and the other staff members that we have. Um, it takes... Far more people to support this ministry and to partner and to come alongside to hold these these men 's arms up um, we 're just the ones that kind of selfishly get to see the work take place on a constant basis um, but you guys, this is our home church, so the bridge comes here this is where we come to church and where we worship and fellowship and so you guys have an extra privilege beyond other churches in town that support us because they don 't get to see it constantly so um, all that to be said, uh, we are doing right now we have a couple more days left in our matching funds campaign, so we had a generous donor give us uh, offer to give us match up to twenty five thousand um, dollars through the month of August. So we're about I mean we're we're a little shy. God can do what He wants to do. We're let's say about halfway there right now. Um, so today we've been at other churches throughout the month that partner with us, announcing the same thing. So we're announcing, lastly, at our home church, this is the last Sunday, we'll be doing an announcement, so if you would like to partner with the bridge financially and help us get up to that um, $25,000 match, then we'd love to have you jump on board and partner with us. If you, uh, just for the sake of ease, we typically don't do, if you want to donate, we have a PO box or we can do it online, Uh, but today, just for the sake of ease, if you can, and Tim and Scott, forgive me for this, but uh, we're gonna. If you could just make a check out to the Bridge Napa. If you have a check, put it in the box back there. They'll get it to a box that we have upstairs. Or you can go online uh, to thebridgenapa.org and and do a one-time donation that way. If you feel so led. But I think you guys just need to know you give a lot to the men here just by being part of the body and part of their family. And um, I believe you guys probably get a lot back in return.
0: All right, we're going to start the book of Colossians this week as we continue reading through the Scriptures week by week. Again, I especially love reading the epistles on Sunday morning because that is uh, the way that it so often went. The apostles would write these letters for the churches to be read to the churches, and they would be copied and sent on to the next church and circulated that way. And so we join in this tradition as old as the church reading the Scriptures together, reading the New Testament epistles as we gather on the Lord's Day. So with that, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. I believe the words are up on the screen as well. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will." in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church." warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. You are the image of the invisible God. You are the head of the church. We worship You. We've gathered here today to give You praise. We've gathered here today to give You thanks. We have gathered here today to pour our hearts out before You corporately. Thank You that You have saved us. Thank You that You have redeemed us. Thank You that when we were at enmity with You, You saw fit to snatch us out of that miry clay, that horrible pit that we were stuck in. We were blind, we were deaf, we were calloused, we were separated from you in our sin and transgression against your goodness, yet such was your goodwill and pleasure, such was your love for us that you saved us. And Lord, we bring nothing to the table. Lord, we come with our hearts wide open and our hands open before you and we say, God, here we are. We love you. Use us for Your glory, God. Have Your way in our lives. We praise You. I thank You for the church, the body of Christ. I thank You for the church around the world that is serving You and worshiping You even now. For the church that is suffering for their testimony, suffering for the Gospel. We pray, O God, that You would pour out grace and mercy and abundance upon them. God, give them the strength that they need even now, Lord, to stand firm for their testimony in Christ. Father, we pray for the lost here in Napa and around the world. God, would You pour out Your Spirit? Would You save sinners even now, God? Would You open hearts, open eyes that they would see, that they would hear, that they would believe, that they would turn? Would You build up Your church, Father? And Lord, I pray for everybody here today, God, in this room, that You would pour Your blessing out upon them richly. Father, you, you know all the needs here. You know all the concerns, all the hurts, all the fears, all the failures, all the doubts, all the regrets, all the joys, all the celebrations. Lord, You know everything that is going on, God, and You're able, Father, able to minister, able to lift up, able to encourage, able to provide, able to lead, to direct, able to defend, able to heal. And so, Father, we just ask that You would have Your way in our midst, that we would honor You today, and we praise You in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Word of God, and we will be in the book of James, chapter 5. As stated many times before, the central theme of James is to be a doer of the Word, right? Not just a hearer of the Word, it's not enough to just hear it, but we actually have to do something with it. We have to obey it, walk in it. And James has given us many practical ways in which we could go about being doers of the Word. And one of the things that seems to come back over and over is the issue of our speech. How can we have God-glorifying speech? How can we have speech that builds up and encourages others as opposed to tearing them down or judging them or slandering them? Well, today, James comes back to the issue of speech, and this time he's dealing with the issue of meaningless promises or swearing oaths, swearing oaths specifically. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever said, cross my heart and you, you have, of course you have, we all have perhaps you've heard someone say or have said, I swear on a stack of... That's right, okay. We all know that in the court of law, you're made to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And sometimes people will go so far as to swear on the grave of a deceased loved one. You know, I swear on my mother's grave. What does that even mean? I don't know exactly what what they're even trying to indicate there, like somehow whether they're true to this promise or not will affect their situation in the afterlife, after the fact. Um, Never really thought that one through. But we know when someone says something like that, what they're trying to indicate is they mean business, and this is serious, and you can take it to the bank, and they are worthy of trust. Now, why do people do that? Well, I just said why, but there's actually a deeper reason, and that is because people know generally that people are liars and cannot be trusted. And if you've lived in this world longer than five minutes, you probably have good reason to believe that. And we have all failed in this area. We all fall short. We have failed to keep our commitments. We have failed to keep our word. And sometimes maybe there was a malicious intent many times, maybe there wasn't, but the fact remains that um, people are hard to trust so often, and so therein lies the issue. We appeal to something greater than ourselves to gain credibility. We have to appeal to something higher than ourselves, something that's more worthy of trust, or we're appealing to something so severe that I wouldn't dare go against my own word because i have basically sworn a curse upon myself if you will that that kind of thing not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator and so when we come to christ we're changed from the inside out there was the old man the old woman and its conduct that has to die. That dies with Christ at the cross. And as we are new, and notice here he says being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, so as we are becoming more and more like our God, more and more like our Savior, we are to put on new practices, new habits. We are to be people who walk in the truth and who speak the truth and who can be counted on to tell the truth even when it's inconvenient even when it might cost us something especially if it might cost us something amen we are the people of god we are to walk in the truth so we should not have to we should not have to hang our word on some greater some greater kind of oath or vow if you will just to have credibility it should be built into who we are our words should mean something simply put Our words should carry weight. And that's really kind of the idea of this verse, ultimately, that we are looking at today. And so, I'll just read this to us, one verse, we can look at this together. James chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. One verse, and we're going to see six different things in this verse. Six observations, if you will, in this verse. We'll look at it in three points. So some of the points kind of have multiple observations, if you will. As we pull this verse apart... In the first part of this verse, we're gonna see the uniqueness of this command, the severity of it, and the prohibition. The uniqueness, the severity, and the prohibition of swearing oaths falsely. Sorry, these aren't, you know, the most these aren't the you know the most dressed up points here. They're pretty technical, but you know, it just is what it is, okay? So look at verse 12 again but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. I want to draw your attention to the phrase, but above all. But above all. This is significant. I have said time and again that these verses often appear to be disconnected, but they tend to be more cohesive than we might recognize at first glance. And so we should really work and labor to understand all of this in its context and see if these things are connected as they often tend to be. However, I do think in this case, verse 12 stands alone. It just it does. And I have seen other uh, pastors and teachers attempt to kind of put it together and teach it verses 1 through 12, and I just cannot see it. I just don't. We were just talking about oppression. You have the rich oppressors who were living very wealthy lives, and they were living very comfortable lives, very lavish lives, such that they were hoarding to the extent that the things that they were hoarding were beginning to rot and decay, while you had the oppressed, who are crying out to God in their oppression, who are suffering greatly, starving, possibly even dying in that state. And then James' admonition really is twofold. God sees both. God sees the oppressor and will judge him. God sees the oppressed and will comfort them in their affliction. And that the oppressed should persevere in light of the Lord's return in light of the fact that the Lord is going to set things right. And then he says, above all, do not swear an oath or by an oath. And I just try as you may. I just don't think you can connect those two together. I've seen people try and I just, uh, I don't see it. So I do believe that this stands alone. The grammar indicates it. He says, but above all, but above all, do not swear oaths." So what am I saying here? Why am I making such an emphasis on this? You know, James is indicating that this issue actually surpasses the previous issue. Now, that previous issue is serious, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's heavy-duty stuff. But James says, more than that even, do not swear oaths. And that sounds kind of strange, if we're just honest. It's like that's bad and you're somehow trying to say this is even more serious than that. How how can that be? How is that so? So we have to unpack that a little bit. How can swearing an oath be more serious than the context of verses 1-11? through And the reality is that the Bible does even prescribe oaths at times, particularly in the Old Testament. So it's not wrong or unbiblical, to make a vow or an oath, if you will. In fact, God swears an oath, and He swears by His own name. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God swore on His own name, because there is nothing greater or higher than God Himself. So if God were to swear on anything else, He's swearing on something even lower than Himself, right? We always have to appeal to something greater than ourselves. So I'm not saying that oaths are wrong or sinful. There was a time and a place for them even in the Bible. These would be very solemn, very sacred occasions. They were not something that happened on the regular. And we are just so flippant you know, I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear on this, I swear on that, to the point that we don't even remember what we've sworn on at some point. We're breaking vows left and right, and we don't even remember, remember it anymore, right? So what's James really getting at here? Well, remember, James is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It was one of the first books. This was not long after Jesus had died and risen and ascended to heaven. And this is a very Jewish book. Remember, initially the church was entirely Jewish. There was a time before the gospel went out amongst the Gentiles and then the church became very, you know, Gentile. It was just Jewish entirely. And we know, according to the gospels, that there was a real issue with oaths among the Jews, very ungodly oaths. And this was something that Jesus actually dealt with specifically Now, we know James is the half-brother of Jesus, and we know that James refers to the Sermon on the Mount 20 times in these five chapters. And that's interesting to me because this would be before the Sermon on the Mount was even recorded, and so at this point, James is referencing Jesus' teachings before the gospel was actually written down, which to me is just another internal evidence to the validity of Jesus' existence and his teachings. And so... He, Jesus addressed this very issue in Matthew chapter 5. So if I've lost you, reel it back in. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking on the issue of oaths. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." And so Jesus is saying here, look, your words should be so solid that you can just say it, and that's binding. And you don't even have the right to swear by anything else because it's not yours. The city of Jerusalem belongs to the king, okay? It's not yours to swear by. It's the throne of God. You can't swear by heaven. That's the throne of God. And he says, in fact, don't even swear by your own head because you can't even control that. You can't even control the growth of your hair or the color of it. And so this was before the the time of hair dye, I think. And so um, he was like, look, so it's pointless. It's pointless. It means nothing. So stop. Just be the kind of person that has such character that when you say something, it carries weight. It means something. It holds water. Well, the issue even went beyond the futility of oaths. The issue amongst the Jews was something even deeper than this. They actually had a very, um, a very uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Elaborate system of oaths to keep from being bound by their oaths. They had loopholes and Jesus addresses this issue. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, he says, "'Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred?' And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So, what they were essentially saying is okay, so the gold in the temple, that's what's really sacred. Okay, the, the building is just a building, but the, temp- the gold, that's something else. So, if you say, I swear by the temple, you're not actually bound because that doesn't actually mean anything, you see? Uh, or, I swear by the sacrifice. Now that's binding. That means something. But the altar, that doesn't mean anything. Well, Jesus says, first off, you got that backwards because the sacrifice is made sacred by the altar and the gold is made sacred by the temple. So you guys got your math wrong anyway. He said, but you know, more than that, this is just deception. It's chicanery. It's trickery. It's deceit. You're creating these loopholes so that you can look like you're making some sort of a profession or some kind of an oath, but you know in your heart you have no intentions of keeping it. Now, don't we do the same thing? How many of us have, I swear, (laughs) finger crossed, you ever done that before? Well, we do that. We have done that. We make oaths, we make vows sometimes, and we don't really have any intentions of keeping it and that's hard. We do make some serious vows sometimes. I think even about wedding vows. Sometimes I think we just mean for better, not necessarily for worse, but we might not realize it when we're standing there saying it, and we're all lost in the other person's eyes, and everybody's feeling it, everybody's vibing. But oaths mean something, and when we give our word, we've got to stand by our word. Amen? Because we're a people of God, the people of the book, the people of truth. Our Savior is the truth. Amen? I might be getting ahead of myself. So swearing by anything is pointless and sometimes counterproductive, okay? But swearing dishonestly blasphemes God and reflects poorly on His people and brings reproach on the name of Christ. And that's why it's serious, Jesus just said that when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by the one who dwells in the temple. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the one who is seated on the throne of heaven. And so you might not realize what you're doing when you do this, but just know that you are treading on holy, sacred ground. So be careful. It's better to just be a person who has the kind of reputation and character that when you say something... That's done. It's done. Amen? That's the kind of people we're called to be. That's the kind of people we're called to be. And so James gives us the alternative. He gives us the alternative. He has really brought out the uniqueness of this, the distinction of this particular command, the severity of it, how serious it is, and given us a prohibition. He says, don't do it. Don't swear, okay? And... and we still do that, I'm sure. He says, don't do it. Now he's going to tell us what to do. Again, in verse 12, he says simply, let your yes be yes and your no, no. All right? That's the appropriate alternative. Our character should be such that when we say this kind of thing, it carries the sufficient weight, as I've already said. And the more, more than that, uh, we should never swear with dishonest intentions. I've already kind of talked about that. That would make us deceivers. That's what, that's what you are. When you swear with dishonest intention, you're a deceiver. Right? The reality is there is a deceiver in the Bible, and his name is Satan. And Satan is a liar, right? And Jesus said that he's the father of lies. And Jesus told those religious hypocrites, these same hypocrites that were making these kinds of oaths, He said that you are of your father, the devil, because he's a liar and so are you. That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy. Jesus he spoke the truth, did He not? Did He not model truth speaking? He's a truth teller. Now, John says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So, what does that mean? Well, light as opposed to darkness, it means truth. It means purity. It means holiness. It means transparency. Like the Bible says that the light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light so they flee because of the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. They love their sin. So you have this juxta, juxta, juxtaposition of light and darkness. And so God is light. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so we have to walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen? And the Bible says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. And so that just reinforces this idea that if we are walking in integrity, if we are walking in the truth, then there's nothing to hinder us from walking with other people in the truth. We desire to be in the light. We desire to be amongst God's people. If there is something that's causing us to shy away from God's people or to hide from God's people or to isolate ourselves... Check your heart, because there is something that is driving that, and then, you know, could be any, any assortment of sins, but there is something that compels us to shy away from the light. As children of God, we must not, we cannot. We have to be those who walk in the truth, who walk in the light. Now, Jesus is the truth, and as followers of Jesus, we are called to walk in the truth. So God is light, we walk in the light. Jesus is the truth, we walk in the truth. Now, I had talked about this earlier in our introduction. I read that verse from Colossians. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 is almost like a parallel chapter to Colossians 3. And Paul unpacks this for us a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20. So allow me to read this to us. Now, Paul had just listed off a number of sins. And he said, this is who you were. This is how you lived. But then in verse 20, he says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. He's, he's saying that's not Christ. That's not how Christ lives. That's not how Christ's people live. It's distinctly different from that old life. He says in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Christ and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So the old man was deceitful, had deceitful desires. He says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. Now listen to this, verse 25, therefore putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this, it changes everything. When we come to Christ and we are renewed in the Spirit and we receive a new heart, we're to put away those old things. The thief is not to steal anymore. That's, that's good. That's a starting point. But now he's supposed to work and labor honestly so that he has something to give to someone who actually has a need. So there's a total revolutionary switch that happens. So we are to go from being deceitful liars to being truth tellers because we are in Christ and that's Christ. He is the truth. He is a truth teller. Amen? Amen. And so everything changes. Guys, I remember, man, I, I was a liar like no other, okay? such that even if I was innocent, it didn't matter, because my reputation was such that people just didn't believe me. And if something happened, I was going to get pegged for it. And guess what? It doesn't matter what I say, because my words meant nothing, right? And so I know all too well what it is to be in this place. When you come to Christ, that has to change. He changes you from the inside out, and then your character changes, and your word actually starts to mean something. Amen? That is the way it's supposed to be in Christ. We should have such character and reputation in Jesus, such a radical life change and transformation that we can be taken by our, for our word. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he prays for them. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and listen to this, that you may be sincere And without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer was for sincerity amongst God's people, that we would be the real deal, real deal. Amen. One commentator, listen to this. I love this. He says, sincere means genuine, and it may have originally meant tested by sunlight that's what sincere may have originally meant it's ancient meaning tested by sunlight he says in the ancient world dishonest dishonest pottery dealers filled cracks in their inferior products without wax before glazing and painting them making worthless pots difficult to distinguish from expensive ones The only way to avoid being defrauded was to hold the pot to the sun, making the wax-filled crack obvious. So dealers marked their fine pottery that could withstand sun testing with the phrase sincera, sincera, which meant without wax. Isn't that cool? And so Paul says, we got to be without wax, sun-tested, genuine, sincere. That's the kind of women of God we ought to be. That's the kind of men of God we ought to be. Tested by the sun, without wax, sincere, genuine. And if we are, our words will mean something. We don't have to say, I swear on this, I swear on that. We are men and women of godly conduct and character, and our words mean something. Well, the last part, last part of uh, this verse, what we see is the warning against and the revelation of falsely swearing oaths this actually reveals something so look at verse 12 again it says but let your yes be yes and your no no your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation so that you may not fall under condemnation now, the beginning of this verse makes clear that James is addressing, addressing believers, because he says brothers. Remember when we talked about the oppressors, the rich oppressors, he did not address them as brothers. He told them to weep and to howl and lament, so he didn't encourage them to repent or to turn. He only expresses this certainty of judgment that is coming their way, so we could surmise from that that James wasn't talking to Christians, but here it seems as though he is, because he says brothers, brothers and sisters, that's who he is addressing. So at first glance, you would not take the word condemnation here to mean wrath or judgment, because we know that if we are in Christ, we've passed from death to life, and we're no longer under God's wrath or judgment, Amen. God's wrath and judgment has been poured out on His Son on our behalf so that we have escaped the finality of God's wrath and judgment. We are set free. And it is from that place that we serve. So what's going on here? Well, we might rightly assume that what is meant by condemnation is the chastening hand of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, because we are under that. If we go against God's goodness and we sin against His Word, God will lovingly chasten us. God will lovingly reprove us, discipline us, so that He can sanctify us and grow us, so that He can set us free from these practices, right? That could be what's in view here. But as this word for condemnation is almost always and very frequently used of God's eternal punishment and judgment. And so... Let's just try to think through this. It could simply be what I just said. It could just be a strict warning of God's chastening. And I don't want to be under God's chastening. I know it's good for me. I know it's loving and it's kind and it's right. But it could be speaking to judgment. And how would that work? Well, remember, James is writing about what? Being a, a doer of the Word, not just a hearer, okay? And he goes so far as to say that faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. Now remember, James is not pitting faith against works. And sometimes we we make that mistake. Which one's more important? Which one's better? What order does it go in? That's not the point. What he's saying is saving faith will produce works. So what he's really pitting against each other is saving faith and dead faith. Saving faith and dead faith. There is a faith that looks like faith, but it's not really genuine faith. It may look the part, but it's not sincere. But then there is genuine faith, saving faith. It is a faith that produces works of righteousness. And so I have heard it said that really the book of James is a book of tests. All of these things that James is laying forth is a test for the believer to do some introspection, basically, to do some self-assessment. Where are we at? Are we a doer of the word? How are we doing in all of these areas? Should I have cause for concern? Am I really in the faith? There could be an element of that here. And so many practical matters are a test of faith. And what James may be saying here is that if you are habitually swearing falsely, deceiving others, blaspheming God, And bringing reproach on Christ, you may have dead faith and be under the wrath of God. And that's something that we need to take seriously. Where do we stand? Have we really trusted Christ for salvation? Is our assurance based on the the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf? Do we have the Holy Spirit of God changing our lives? Is God's priority our priority? If Christianity became illegal today and they were to investigate into your life, is there enough evidence there for them to convict you and to condemn you as a Christian? We have to ask these kinds of questions. Are we really in the faith? How do we stand up in these areas? Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying that if you've ever made a promise, even a promise to God and have failed to keep it, I'm not saying you're going to hell for that, okay? And I'm not saying you should fear because you're probably not even saved, okay? That's not really where I'm trying to go here. I think there's an element of, of, you know, we have to examine ourselves, as Paul said, to be sure, because if what I just said is true of you, if you are habitually swearing falsely and deceiving and blaspheming, then yes, you may really need to repent and turn to Christ and be forgiven and be saved. God knows that. You and God know I'm asking, what is the pattern of our lives here? Are we truth-tellers? Are we compelled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God to tell the truth, to know the truth, to walk in the truth, to dispense the truth, even at a very certain real cost to ourselves? Is our character such that it reinforces our words? You know, the pastor, uh, the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, it says, first thing, he has to be above reproach. The idea there is not that he has to be a perfect man, but his character is such that when you hear something against him, your first thought would be, wow, I would not have expected that, or I don't even know if I believe that, because I know this guy, I know his life, I know his marriage, I see. You know, I just, I know him, his character is such that I don't believe that. Whereas, sometimes you may hear something about somebody and say, well, that didn't come as a surprise at all. I could have told you that. I saw that coming from a million miles away. So that's not good. That's an individual who does not live an above reproach life. If we are above reproach and we have a reputation with those inside the church and outside the church, that should reinforce our words and we know that we are a people of solid and sound character. And we don't have to go around saying, I swear, I swear to God, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, or I swear on my mom's grave, or I swear on my life, or any of that kind of stuff. We don't have to do that, because we are truth tellers. We are those who have been changed by the truth. Now, if you're someone who does not have that kind of character, and your word does not mean anything, and you know it, does it have to stay that way? No, it does not. No, it does not. That's the good news. It doesn't have to stay that way. Can we change that? Yes. Yes, we can. God changes that. Does it take time? Yes. It is easy to lose trust. Trust is easily lost. And it does take time to be restored But our God is a God who restores. That is the business that He is in. That is why He sent His Son to die, so that we could be saved, forgiven, transformed, so that we could be redeemed, so that He could restore to us so many things. Amen? I mean, He restores so many things to our lives. He doesn't just save us and set us free. He builds our life. And He doesn't just build it back to its former shell. He does a brand new thing. And one of the great things he did in my life was building back the trust that I had broken with my family, with my friends. Amen. Such that now people that didn't know me before, they just so often will say, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that, that guy. Right. And I see that so often with the guys in the bridge ministry and people in the church. You see this person in Christ and think, I cannot imagine you being this person that I've heard described for me. And that's what God does. That's the hope of the gospel. Our God saves, and our God changes, and our God restores. Our God heals. Our God mends. And we can be the kind of people who have a solid character, a solid word that glorifies God and honors Christ. Amen? That's the kind of people that we must be in our marriages, in the workplace, amongst our children, in school, at home, in the church, wherever we be. We have to be people who walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk in integrity, that honor and glorify God as the God of all truth. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your holy Word. We thank You for the truth of Your Word, the blessedness of it. We thank You for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in the world saving sinners. He has died for us, risen again to the newness of life according to the Scriptures three days later. and Now the gospel is a free invitation to all who would believe. And So I would simply say right now with our heads bowed, and our eyes closed, you don't even have to raise your hand. If you're in this room right now and you know that these things are true and that you need God's forgiveness, that you need the salvation that has been bought for you at the cross, that your character really is shattered and your word means nothing, and you desire to be made new in Christ and to be transformed and to have God save you and change you, you can have that. All you have to do is believe Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. You believe in your heart that He's the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead. You confess with your mouth that you're a sinner in need of His gift of salvation. You turn. Turn away from that old life. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God in Christ. Receive His forgiveness. Receive His power. Receive from Him all the bountiful blessings that He desires to pour out upon your life. Stop striving. Stop fighting. Stop rejecting it. Just believe. Trust Christ. And Father, we thank You for the good work that You're doing amongst Your people. Thank You, Father, for how You are growing us, changing us, cleaning up our lives so that we can reflect Christ in this crooked and perverse generation, making us vessels of honor so that You can use us, God, to reach others. And so, Father, we give you the glory. We give you the praise and the honor. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Oh, lift your eyes to heaven. See the Holy One eternal. Behold the Lord of majesty, exalted in his temple. As symphonies of angels praise Now strain to sound His glory Come worship all before His grace The King in all His beauty How worthy How worthy How worthy Sing the first verse again. Oh, lift your eyes to heaven, see the Holy One eternal. Behold the Lord of Majesty, exalted in his temple. Now, symphonies. As symphonies of angels praise. Now strain to sound His glory. Come worship all before His grace. The King in all His beauty. How worthy! How worthy! king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters, the sacrifice for ruined men, the substitute for sinners, as earth is stained with royal blood. And quakes with love and fury. He breathes his last and bows his head. The king in all his beauty. How worthy. How worthy. How worthy. How worthy, how worthy, how worthy, the King in all his beauty. Now see. Now see the Savior lifted up, the Lamb who reigns in splendor. tribe and tongue his kingdom is forever bring praise and honor to his courts bring wisdom power and blessing for endless ages we'll adore the king in all his beauty how worthy how worthy how worthy king. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the all things, who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come let us adore him Who has held, who has felt Who has felt the nails upon his hands Bearing all the guilt of sinful men God eternal, humble to the grave Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign Behold our God Seated on His throne Come, let us adore Him Behold our King Nothing can compare when I think that God, is Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. And when I think that God, is Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died. To take away my sin Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art.
0: He is great, amen. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace. God bless you guys. See you next Lord's Day.
2: Wednesday.